Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. My name is Angela Saylor, and thank you for joining us today. We are so excited to have you. I am the vice president of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation, and I am so excited to host the, um, this webinar entitled National Education Survey Results, Civics Education and 1619. This is part one of our three-part Education in Amer America series. Just a few housekeeping notes. This session is going to be recorded and will be available after the webinar. I'd also like to remind you that we are so excited about you being a part of the conversation and you are encouraged to submit your questions in the question box throughout the webinar. Make sure that you add your name, affiliation, and where you're tuning in from, and we will get to your questions during the question and session. We'll also be sharing today's recording um, with you and others following the event. President John Adams said, facts are stubborn little things and whatever may be our wishes or our inclinations cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Dr. Lindsey Berg, director of the Ed Policy Center here at the Heritage Foundation, sought out to get the facts by leading the Heritage Foundation's effort in partnership with Braun Research to conduct a national survey, Culture of American K-12 Education. This nationally representative survey of parents and a subsample of school board members across the country comes at such a very important time. A number of commentary pieces the anchor of which is the New York Times 1619 Project, have distorted the story of America's founding. The 1619 Project argues that the United States history began in not 1776, but in 1619, when enslaved Africans were brought to North America. It has since led to the development of supportive school curriculum from the Pulitzer Center, now in more than 4,000 classrooms across the country. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance and a people who mean to be their own governors must affirm themselves with the power that knowledge gives us. So I'd like to invite to the screen our speakers for today who are going to empower us with knowledge. We're going to begin with Lindsay Burke, who I mentioned earlier is the director of the Center of Ed Policy here at Heritage. She's going to give us an overview of the survey findings. And guess what? This is the first time this incredible information has been released publicly. Following Lindsay's presentation, we'll be joined by our own Mike Gonzalez, who's a senior fellow at Heritage and author of Plot to Change America. Jonathan Butler will then give us his remarks. He's senior policy analyst here at the Center of Education Policy at Heritage. And finally, our friend and partner 
on these issues, Lenny McAllister, who's director of the Commonwealth Foundation. Lindsay, I invite you to take the floor. Great, well, thank you, Angela, uh, for that great introduction of our survey. And thanks to all of uh, our panelists for being here today. We are thrilled to present, this is, as Angela mentioned, the very first time we're presenting these survey findings. We're really thrilled to present them to all of you today. I'm gonna quickly, as quickly as possible, go through the demographic data of our survey. Of course, that's really important to understand before we present the findings. Uh, but we started off with a, a survey of parents across the country. As Angela mentioned, the survey was conducted by Braun Research. And so it's a nationally representative sample of parents. We have about uh, 1,000, we have 1,001 uh, parents who are in our sample, again, representative across the country. And we fielded this survey in early April through the end of May 28th. That, of course, is important considering everything that's going on in the country right now to know when parents were thinking about the questions that we've presented. Of our parent sample, those thousand parents, uh, we had about 77% whose children attend regular traditional public schools, about 12% in private schools, about 8%, nearly 7.5% uh, were homeschooling, which is a bit above the national average, and about 6% of uh, those children were attending public charter schools. So all of our parents are parents of school-aged children in our survey. Uh, the gender among parents was fairly representative overall of when we think about parents of school-aged children, uh, about 55% are women in our survey, and about nine in 10 parents are between the ages of 30 and 59, and about six in 10 were between 30 and 44 overall. The race and ethnicity characteristics of our parent sample mirror census statistics for parents of students in ages uh, in grades K through 12. So about 74% were white, 11.7% African American, 4% Asian, and about 21% Hispanic. We also have a balance of respondents across educational status. So you can see the breakdown here. Uh, about 33% had a high school degree or less all the way up through graduate degrees, at about 13% with graduate degrees. And then finally, on the parent demographics, the political leanings of the parents are important to consider the overall responses in the survey. About 33% of our respondents self-identified as Republican, about 32% as Democrat, and about 28% other. So pretty representative there as well. And then finally on the parent piece, you can see the regional breakdown is also a pretty good distribution across the U.S. that's in line with the U.S. Census. As I mentioned, we had uh, about 1,000, 1,001 parent respondents for a 22% response rate in our parent portion of the survey. On the school board members, I'll go ahead and run through those demographics really quickly because when I present the findings, I'll show you the parent response and then the school board response for each question that we fielded. Um, this survey of the school board members ran through June 9th. Almost all school board members in our survey were elected to their position. About 96% of the respondents were elected. A little under 4% of school board members were appointed. For the race and ethnicity of school board members, you can see the breakdown there, about 65% of respondents are white, 11% African-American, uh, less than 1% Asian, and about 7% Hispanic. 
And you can see that uh, the school board respondents uh, did have a high proportion of graduate degrees among those respondents. About 53% of school board respondents had graduate degrees. The political leanings of the school board members, this in and of itself is interesting. Republicans, self-identified Republicans, comprised about three in 10 of our school board member respondents. And then the Democrat independent split, it was about equal between that split. We had 25% self-identified as Democrat and about 25% independent. Now, one caution in particular on the school board portion of our survey is that a little more than half of the school board members in our study are from the Southeast region. So we did end up with an over-representation of school board members from the South. So just something to bear in mind as you see our findings. Overall, we had about, we had 566 uh, full survey respondents among the school board member portion of our survey. And there was a low response rate there, which is something else that should be uh, interpreted with caution when you think about these results. We had less than 3% response rate on the school board member. So what did we find overall? So as I mentioned, I'm gonna show you the parent responses first, followed by, for every question, the school board member response. And this portion of the survey, what we're presenting today, this was actually a, a pretty comprehensive survey on quite a few issues. Today, we're just covering the civics component of the survey and doing a deep dive into 1619 in particular. So first we ask parents and then school board members what they thought about the level of civics instructions in their child's school today, or in the case of school board members in the public schools that they represent. You can see the, the full survey question there on the right. Uh, we basically point to the fact that many people think that civics instruction is vital to laying the foundation for civic learning. And then we ask, do you think that your child's school provides enough instruction in the area of civics education? Among parents, almost two thirds of parents think that their child's public school has enough instruction in civics, two thirds. It was precisely the inverse for our school board member respondents. About two thirds of school board members thought public schools do not provide enough instruction in civics. So um, I don't think I said this at the beginning, but we provided the same questions to our parent sample and then our sample of school board members after the fact. So what about 1619? So the question, you can see it's a little long there on the end, but we wanted to provide some context for the overall initiative uh, as part of the survey. And so in the survey, we said, recently, some journalists began the 1619 Project, which is a push to rethink the founding date of America, quote, to reframe US history by marking the year when the first enslaved Africans arrived on Virginia soil as our nation's foundational date. And we take this language largely verbatim from the 1619 Project. More than 3,500 schools have begun to incorporate the 1619 Project. As Angela mentioned, it's actually far above that at this point, into their curriculum using prompts such as, quote, what examples of hypocrisy in the founding of the US does the writer supply in the essay? What evidence can you see for how some might argue that this nation was founded not as a democracy, but as a, quote, slaveocracy? And so we lay that out and then the, we ask the question of the respondents, do you want your child's school to use this instructional material based on the idea that slavery is the center of our national narrative? 
while about four in 10 parents want to use instructional material based on that idea that slavery is the center of our national narrative, about half would prefer not to do so. So you can see the breakdown there. School board members were uh, less open to using that framing. Uh, so again, the same question, do you want your school to use instructional material based on the idea that slavery is the center of our national narrative? And nearly 70% of school board members said, no, seven in 10 do not want to change the history narrative to focus on slavery. So then we ask parents whether or not uh, they believe that curriculum for school children should promote the view that our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written by the founders. This is another idea that comes up as part of 1619. And parents are somewhat equally divided on that uh, question. So it was about 45% said no and 47% said yes. The school board members were not equally divided. 70% of school board members said no to that question, that school children should uh, have curriculum that promotes the view that our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false. So then we ask parents about this idea specifically of reframing US history. Do you think that schools should reframe American history so that children will learn that the United States has been tainted by slavery and racism and that its institutions now need change? And most parents do not think that schools should reframe history that way. 57% responded no to that question. Slightly higher on the school board members, 64%, almost 65% of the school board members in our survey said no to that question. And then we ask explicitly about changing from 1776 to 1619 as the, when the, the birth of the U.S. as a nation should be considered. So we ask if students should be taught that the birth of the nation is 1619, the year the first slaves landed in the English colonies, or 1776, the year the colonists declared independence. And you can see here that about 59, almost 60 percent of parents said 1776. Um, you can see there's a bit of a difference there among uh, younger parents, ages 18 to 39, about 50% thought that it should be 1619, and among African-American parents, about 65% thought that it should be 1619 rather than 1776. The school board members uh, very much want to keep it as 1776, 72%, almost 73% said it should remain 1776, just 16% said it should be 1619. Now, uh, this question we ask of parents and school board members what they would like their children to learn about America's past with regard to slavery, either that our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written and that we must reframe American history, or that slavery was a tragedy that harmed the nation but that our freedom and prosperity represents who we are as a nation, offering a beacon to those wanting to immigrate here. And nearly 70% of parents chose the latter, that the nation still offers a beacon of hope to those wanting to immigrate here. Uh, school board members slightly higher on that, 73% said that it should still be taught that the nation is a beacon of hope to those wanting to immigrate here. And then the final question that we ask in this portion of our survey uh, we use language that the National Education Association has been using, saying that in order to achieve social justice, 
that educators, quote, must acknowledge the existence of white supremacy culture as a primary root cause of institutional racism, structural racism, and white privilege. So we presented that and then said, do you believe such content should be incorporated into the classroom? 54% of parents uh, said yes, that they do think that should be incorporated into the classroom. 36% said no. Among our school board members, 53% said no, and 39% said yes, they think that that should be incorporated into the classroom. So among all of our questions, we see a bit of a schism between where parents are and where school board members are. In the interest of time, I'll go through the summary really quickly, but parents of children in K through 12 grades are generally satisfied with civics instruction. When it comes to the 1619 narrative, there are some differing views that exist, but that tends to reflect the differing views in our nation at the moment. Uh, parents are divided on how slavery should be taught, but, and most think, uh, still hold on to this idea that 1776 should serve as the year of the birth of America. And then on the school board members, most are generally satisfied with civics instruction given in schools. When it comes to the slavery narrative, seven in 10 overall do not want to change the educational focus of current history classes. Most school board members believe that America's founders were genuine and their espoused ideals of liberty, liberty and equality. And then uh, school board members also thought overall that about two thirds were against reframing American history to paint a picture of the past as tainted by slavery and racism and fully seven in 10 agreed that 1776 should remain the year of America's birth. So I know that's a really quick overview. I will turn it back over now to my colleagues to tell us what they think all of these findings should inform us about. Thank you, Lindsay. We're gonna, we're gonna start by giving the floor to Mike Gonzalez, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Mike, please take the floor. Uh, thank you, Angela, and thank you, Dr. Burke. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be on with my friends, Jonathan and, and Lenny. Um, look, the attempt to rewrite history by the 1619 Project is not new, <clears throat> nor is it spontaneous. It's got an old pedigree. The mayhem we're seeing in our streets today, the toppling of statues of founders and even abolitionists, <clears throat> the rejection of America's founding, of its institutions, its history, its economic system is part of an effort to, that has been unfurling for decades. Um, we, we can't forget that before 1619, there was Howard Zinn. Before Howard Zinn, there was Herbert Marcuse. And before Her Herbert Marcuse, there was Antonio Gramsci and his theory of cultural hegemony. <clears throat> uh, now, Gramsci's hegemonic narrative is what you and I and other normal people know as the story of America, American history, the one that starts with the founding in 1776, the 1619 Project is the counter-narrative uh, that must replace the story of 76. So the attacks you see right now on everything that Americans used to hold dear is now the result of some spontaneous outburst by young anarchists. <clears throat> the fact that so many of our parents, according to the survey results that Dr. Burke just shared, um, uh, believe the way they do, it's a result of years, or actually, no, decades of indoctrination and that indoctrination had a purpose. So that's an important thing that we need to remember. Uh, my book, which uh, uh, Ms. Saylor mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, the plot to change America, uh, how identity politics is, is dividing the land of the free, is 
being very timely and it deals with all this, but I'm, I'm really sorry why it is so timely at the moment. As I explain in it, the history of why there are some people who are so single-mindedly determined to destroy the American narrative and replace it with a new one is in, in several of its chapters. Uh, I, the starting point I propose, as I said, is the 1920s with Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian communist leader who is sent to pr prison by Mussolini, as the prosecutor said, to stop his brain from working. That was a very bad mistake. We know from several examples in history, starting with the, the Apostle St. Paul, that in prison you actually do some really good thinking. <clears throat> so he starts in, 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 in the late 20s, what he what is later comes to be known as the prison diaries, and, and in it he explains his theory of cultural hegemony. And it basically is this, you know, Marx and Engels uh, in, in the mid-19th century had promised that there would be revolutions everywhere, that the, the contradictions of, of, of capitalism were too too huge, uh, and, and that the working, the working class would inexorably rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. But Gramsci reckons that this has only happened once in 1917 in some backwater of Europe called Russia, but since 1848, uh, every revolution has failed. Uh, in, in the German Revolution of 1919, failed. There's no, uh, there's no German Soviet. The Italy's Vienna uh, uh, Rosso of 1919-1920 fails. There's no Italian Soviet. There is an Italian. There's a, there's a Soviet established in Hungary briefly, but it only lasts 133 days. And America is beyond redemption. The, the workers of America are way too happy to rebel. So, so Gramsci's insight is that the workers had bought into the belief system of their so-called oppressors, that they had accepted the, the, the nation, they had accepted patriotism, they had accepted the family, uh, the capitalist economic system, they had accepted religion. The bourgeoisie no longer needed the threat of violence to coerce the workers into submission. The workers themselves, of their own volitions, were, were uh, uh, suppressing themselves. They had what the Marxists called false consciousness. Uh, the trick henceforth was to ch uh, change this thinking uh, through consciousness raising exercises. Uh, the re-education sessions, sessions led by the Revolutionary Guard, Vanguard, sorry, of leftist intellectuals would teach uh, the new workers that everything they had believed until that point was bad, ugly, and warped. Uh, and then they would teach them a new counter-narrative. Uh, this is when Marxism mutates from being based on economics to being based on culture and what we speak now in terms of cultural Marxism. Now, a great part of this counter-hegemony is about filling the new agents of revolt with grievances. The this, struggle this sessions would transform, in, in Gramsci's words, quote, the facts of vassalage into the signals of rebellion in social construction, unquote. Dissent would be crushed through what Herbert Marcuse later called uh, repressive tolerance. This we see today in our can cancel culture, unfortunately. Marcuse was active uh, in the United States in the 60s and 70s. He took up, took up with Gramsci, left off uh, three decades earlier. He, like his Italian predecessor, he despaired that the worker, this type, the American worker, was just way too content to do the necessary work of revolution. But as Marcuse sits in New York and California and he watches the, the, the race riots of the 60s and 70s, he decides that the new agent of revolt would be minority groups, identity groups, which would then have to be uh, multiplied. We get more and more identity groups. Uh, like Gramsci, he thinks that they would have to be instilled with a narrative of victimhood. 
this is what he writes, all liberation depends on the consciousness of servitude. He writes that in, in 1964, I believe. So men like Howard Zinn that would come along and explain to American children how much servitude the American system had uh, produced. Uh, Zinn's very dishonest uh, people's history of the United States is still be, being used in our schools, and it was started decades before 1619. This is why an inspiring, inspiring history of America has to be torn down. America can no longer be the place uh, devoted from the start to the proposition that all men are created equal, however it's imperfections, that Lincoln called the last great hope for man on earth, grounded in a constitution that Frederick Douglass praised as a glorious liberty document or founded in a declaration of independence that the Reverend Martin Luther King hailed as, quote, a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Instead, we have CNN talking to us all weekend and referring to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington as mere slave owners, as if they had done nothing else. Um, and we get the results. Some of the, I explained some of the results that Dr. Burke explained. Uh, there's hope, however. I don't want to leave you on a bad note. I do have hope in my heart. I do see 2020 as a year of historic, historical reckoning, but I see it as the year when the American people finally begin to realize that decades of teaching the children to hate their country has been a colossal mistake. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike Gonzalez. Um, you've given us a lot of information to, to process and to think about, and it's you're showing us that you know nothing just started yesterday. There's a long history there. We want to bring Jonathan Butcher, who's a senior policy analyst uh, at the Heritage Foundation, on next. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to uh, my uh, other individuals on the panel. It's a pleasure to be with you today. For those that are watching and are parents of school-aged children, the past spring was an interesting opportunity to see uh, close, closely what your students are learning and have been presented with. Uh, so for those who are watching, uh, take a moment now and, and ask yourself, what do you know about what your student is taught in school? Do you know? Uh, what your child is being taught in history class or in social studies. If you do, uh, what, what do you think about it or what have you thought about it? Uh, have you ever gone to a teacher to say something to them about what your child is being taught? Has this been something that's been dinner table conversation and what has that conversation been? I think this whole panel is really a, a chance for uh, those who are watching to consider what it's been like for yourselves over the past couple of months as school buildings have been closed and students have been at home to think through what what does it mean to know more about what your child is learning in school? What How has that affected uh, the conversations that you've had with them? And what will it mean uh, when, if students go back uh, this fall? So with that, I'd like to give three implications for what children are taught in school. And in particular, the conversation that we're having about the 1619 Project especially. What, what are the implications for us today and what does it mean uh, for us and the, the next year, the next five years, uh, and this next generation of students? So there are three implications we're going to talk about. The first are the educational uh, implications. And uh, then we'll talk about the social implications and then finally what the policy implications are for uh, this curriculum. So first, education at the K-12 and college level is ultimately about the pursuit of truth. The overarching point of the 1619 Project 
is a subjective explanation of history. And that is an explanation that is subject to different perspectives. Uh, and so while we can describe facts and their meaning in different ways, we can't make up the facts themselves. Writing for the 1776 Unites Project, John McWhorter of Columbia University said the project is founded on nothing less than empirical sand. The evidence for that is that the New York Times already issued a correction to the 1619 project back in March. Now this is fine for a news source, but when the material, as has been discussed already here and, and mentioned by Ms. Saylor, is already in schools as a part of a curriculum through the Pulitzer Center, it's much harder to change the content that's being delivered to thousands of children. So the material wasn't ready for schools at the time that it was delivered. But let's take the most glaring example of this. The 1619 Project originally said that preserving slavery was a primary reason for fighting the revolution. Now, the project has hedged on that, and they say that some colonists fought to protect slavery. McWhorter wrote earlier this year that the issue is not differing interpretations of history, but an outright in misinterpretation of it. He's not alone. Leslie Harris is a history professor at Northwestern University who reviewed the project for the Times and said this assertion was an incorrect statement, as she wrote for Politico. The Times went ahead and published it anyway. Now, this is important because the Times itself says that the 1619 Project is meant to reframe American history. And yet here we have one of the core ideas used to substantiate these revisionist ideas has been deemed problematic enough that it was corrected. And in her article in Politico, uh, Harris talked about uh, what this will mean for the uh, the efforts of the whole project to to talk about a difficult subject. And she said that by going forward with an idea that was not accurate would undermine the the rest of what it was trying to to talk about and discuss. And it has. So take it another step further. Pulitzer winning historians, historians plural, have called the project, uh, have said that the project has weak scholarly support. Schools must present students with the best scholarship available. And that makes 1619 nothing short of inadequate. Yet interest groups are already fully invested. The National Education Association, the American Federation for Teachers, the two largest teachers unions in the US, uh, each have already created either websites or hosted events featuring the material in the project. So it's already a part of what these very vocal interest groups are making uh, a front and center in the way that they consider uh, how classroom instruction should be delivered. So number two, let's talk about the social implications. For those who were watching uh, the riots over the past several weeks, you may have seen a statue in Portland, Oregon of George Washington that was torn down and had 1619 spray painted on the side, which was a clear nod to this project. Thus, the, this is the civic consequence of releasing a set of materials on the world, uh, especially with inaccuracies built in. When Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind in the 80s, he said, we live in a thought world and the thinking has gone very bad indeed. And that was in the 80s. This certainly applies today now with a project that finds its natural consequence in a call for reparations not unity, not opportunity. In fact, the latest article from the New York Times magazine's, magazine along these lines 
Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the lead editor, dismisses the possibility that new opportunities are possible or should be the answer, or that making a better future can be a remedy for a flawed past. This creates hopelessness and a sense that there can only be winners and losers. And that brings us to number three, which is the policy or political implications of what is being taught in school and specifically this project. In the latter article that came out just two weeks ago, Ms. Hannah Jones, again, the lead editor, um, said in a strange comment near the end of the article where she said that, that white Americans are not the ones who would pay for the reparations, but it is the federal government that pays. Now, that is a troubling statement because, of course, taxpayers send money to the federal government, and it doesn't matter what color you are, you still must pay taxes. For a piece that is trying to make a statement about income disparity and the transfer of wealth, such a misrepresentation of how government works makes it very hard for us uh, to be able to take the salient points uh, that may be there seriously. So let me finish with an education-related policy uh, implication. Uh, in this article that I was uh, that most recently came out, uh, Ms. Hannah Jones says that education is no longer a ladder of opportunity because disadvantaged and minority students cannot escape failing schools, and that making school segregation illegal in Brown versus Board of Education did not quote repay Black families for the theft of their educations. But she misses the point that these inequalities persist, namely because students are assigned to traditional schools according to where they live. So let's fix that problem. Let's talk about that going forward. Let's erase school district boundaries. If charter schools are helping students succeed in Chicago and Los Angeles, well then ask the teacher unions, the ones that are fully invested already in 1619, ask the unions why they are forcing these students to stay in traditional schools by capping the growth of charter schools through collective bargaining agreements or in deals that ended teacher strikes. Or ask them that why they are limiting the eligibility for private school choice programs. If we're ready to address each of these areas in the, the educational, the social, as well as the policy implications of what is being done in schools uh, through this curriculum, then we've got to be prepared to talk about opportunity. We've got to be prepared to talk about how we can turn from a discussion about facts that uh, have a weak basis to talking about ways that we can help every child find a great future and achieve the American dream. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, you have given great insight uh, into, into this project called 1619. Um, we want to now bring Lenny McAllister, who's with the, um, the, the Commonwealth Foundation on for, for your remarks. Welcome, Lenny. Thank you, Antoine. Thank everybody for joining us today and, and talking about this very important project. Now, we, we heard a lot of the scholarly heft behind where we are in America today concerning the 1619 Project, but one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for us moving forward, not being able to look at our history the way we have in quite some time? Now, there's several things that come with that, and I'm going to talk less scholarly and more what's in it for you and me, for our children and our grandchildren moving forward. Number one, we have to look at the fact that the ability to think critically, to be able to work through multiple issues all at once and be able to create a better way for not just our communities,
but our nation as a whole and as the world leader when it comes to democracy and justice, be able to continue to be that shining city on a hill. It's extremely important for us to allow our children and grandchildren to continue to think critically. I think one of the things that flaws the, the 1619 project the most is the fact that it thinks in a silo. And as we well know, the world is shrinking. So just as we've been dealing with the pandemic, we can't just deal with the pandemic and not deal with the economy and not deal with social implications, not deal with education and the like. Just the same, when we look at our American history and we understand the founding that we had in 1776 and the complexities that transpired in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries as we move to our modern times, it's highly important for our children to learn those critical thinking skills at every step of the way to be able to see the heroism in somebody that still had a fatal flaws in place. That's not just an American story. That's a human story. That's something that if you're a Christian, you learn in church. That's something that you learned throughout the churches of worship or the houses of worship and the like throughout our upbringing, which allows us to have the moral constitution necessary to take on the challenges, find those strange bedfellows when necessary in order to take our society to the next level. Projects such as the 1619 Project do not give us an opportunity to allow kids from all different backgrounds to find their success story, even in the most egregious of situations. Again, if you take 1619 and only take it around the premise of a slaveocracy, it robs the fact that there were white abolitionists that gave their lives for the purpose of making sure that all men were free. If we talk about all of our values were fraudulent from 1776 on forward. There's no redemption in the American story. There's no leadership or moral leadership when it comes to taking on the Soviet Union in the 20th century, taking on Hitler prior to that, or anything else along those lines. Our children are being stripped away of history because the further it goes away and the more we look at pop culture and social media and the like, there's more of a temptation to move away from things that are painful, uncomfortable, and necessary for us to reflect upon commonly in order to figure out the problems that face us today and moving forward tomorrow. It's absolutely necessary that our children have an opportunity to do that. As well, there's something to be said about the common patriotism that we all gravitate around. Too often times we find ourselves only gravitating around the flag once every four years around the Olympics, in the summertime more often than not, or every now and then, unfortunately, when there's a national tragedy. America is greater than just us coming together around 9-11 or coming together around a team that's halfway around the world. The power of the American story for every single child is to be able to find themselves, regardless of where they started, whether it was Ellis Island or in the fields in Alabama or on the Mayflower, to be able to find their roots, be able to find their path and be able to find their way forward. There's an obligation for schools, whether they're public schools or private schools and everything in between, to be able to give the scholarly foundation for kids to do that research moving forward. Ask probing questions, ask the right questions. How can Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence and yet own slaves? That's a valid question. To basically eradicate the fact that Thomas Jefferson had values that were promoted forward not only as a, a signer and author of the Declaration of Independence, but also as the third president, it, it truncates what we are as a nation. And it robs us of who we've been 
moving forward every step of the way. There's something to be said in these very divisive times about finding something that allows us to unite, a, a common truth, even if it's an uncomfortable truth, to allow us to be able to move forward, especially as Mike laid out and Jonathan laid out, when you look at the threats to us that have been dividing us and trying to divide us for decades on end. Now more than ever, we have to be able to gravitate towards something that shows that we can get through the worst of times, we can get through some of our own flaws nationally, individually, and the like, and be able to find a better way as Americans. And the way we do that with our children is to show that through what we teach about ourselves, from civics to history, on through to social studies and contemporary evaluations of where we are right now, how we got here, and how we're going to move forward. I'm looking forward to any of you all's questions, but I want you to understand that what Mike laid out and what Jonathan laid out is how we got here and why it's so critical for us to re-grasp and re-embrace the American story that we know, even with the warts, so that we can get past our current flaws and have even a better future moving forward. Thank you so much, Lenny. Um, I want to invite the rest of the panelists uh, back on the screen. Uh, this is a very emotional, high-charging issue um, that you know people you know have different viewpoints on and express differently. But we want to take a moment here um, as as we go into a little bit of a discussion before we launch into the questions that are coming in. And thank you to you all who are consistently logging those questions in the question box. But as I said, this is a, an emotionally charged subject. Uh, we're talking about the stake of our country and the legacy of freedom. Parents are out there wanting to know what they can do, and they're tired of pushing against bureaucracy. I mean, curriculum just seems like a tall, heavy burden for parents, but what can parents do as we pull back off of the emotion and look at the practical steps that need to happen in order to save our nation? Lindsay, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Well, you know, I would reiterate something that Jonathan said a few minutes ago in, in case anybody missed it. But, you know, the, the pandemic, uh, if there's any silver lining at all, it has given parents an opportunity to really do a deep dive into what their children are learning in school. Um, they're out of school now. They are at home with family. We're all accidental homeschoolers now, all schooling from home. So having that opportunity to really delve into what is being taught in public schools and even some private schools across the country is really important. And then for me, of course, it always comes back to parents demanding that they have options and they should demand that they have those options. So making their voices heard that school choice is something that is important to them. Uh, we need to move toward more options that provide transparency around the curriculum and content that is being taught in schools as well. But Coupled with that transparency has to be an exit option for families from district schools that aren't meeting their needs or are teaching content that is really antithetical to their own values. Mike, you've given us an incredible um, backdrop on history, but you're also a parent, scholar and a parent. How do you answer this question in terms of what parents can practically do to push back? Well, I think that, uh, as Dr. Burke said, the pandemic has, has, has helped us in the sense that we now look at what our children uh, study. But I think also that the riots and the disturbances have helped a great deal because I think a lot of people are watching their TVs, looking aghast at, at the statues uh, of people like Ulysses S. Grant, who, who won the Civil War and who went after the KKK, a towering 
general uh, Abraham Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, men who had flaws. But you know, uh, even even Socrates and Abraham and Moses had flaws. We all have flaws. Um, uh, so I think that people are beginning to to say to themselves, "Wait a second, really? Do we really need to teach the children to hate America?" As Edmund Burke said, "In order for the country to be loved, the country has to be lovely." And I think the left understands that much better than we do, that we conservatives do. And we have allowed this to happen for a long time. I personally, what I do, I have three children. <clears throat> Two of them have gone through middle school. Uh, one is finished with high school. Uh, and and from, the, from the beginning, from, um, uh, from middle school, what I call junior high, uh, they, they have been taught Howard Zinn. They, they have been taught things that are from the Howard Zinn project. And I, 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 I fully expect that uh, my last son, who's now going into, into middle school, will be taught the 1619 Project soon. It is my job as a parent to, when he brings that workload home, I have to decode it and explain it to him and say, this is just a pack of untruths. Uh, this is not this. We have a country that for all its problems, I want to leave you with this. I have lived in seven different countries as a foreign correspondent, uh, at least a year in seven different countries. This is a great country. That's the reason we have a line of people out the door trying to get in. And the line of people trying to leave it is non-existent. And that's what I try to teach my children. Thanks for the question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Jonathan, I want to go to you. I know you outlined policy and, and from a social standpoint and from an academic standpoint. But where do you want to punch in on um, for just the one thing you want people to remember as they get off of the call in terms of their power as citizens in, in this country. Sure, thank you, Ms. Saylor. I think to begin with, for parents, talk to your child's teacher. Know what's being done in the classroom. Uh, you should know what your child's being exposed to and you should be ready to speak up uh, about it. I think collectively, as those who are truly concerned about the pursuit of truth, uh, we can think back to um, some years ago, it's it, 10, 15 years ago, when movies like Waiting for Superman and The Lottery and The Cartel were released about uh, the parent choice in education and what an impact that had on changing the perspective about the need to give every child, no matter their zip code, no matter their background, the chance to succeed. 1619 has a, a step up here, right? It was released as a, a very splashy magazine article. Uh, a book is following and now there is a movie that, or some sort of movie or TV dis, that's coming next. Uh, so I think that those who uh, are ready to respond on the same level will need to do so. They'll need to respond in kind. Uh, we'll need to be ready to um, uh, have uh, th the same kind of appeal to the sense of, uh, of truth, um, of wanting to remember that um, it's the future that we need to be looking towards for opportunity, right? We need to be creating ways for people to succeed. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's very insightful. Lenny, back over to you. I mean, there is, um, you, you are an African-American male uh, who's raising children and you know there's there this conversation has different parallel uh, discussions going on at the same time. Talk to us in terms of what parents can do, but but as a, a as a black household, as an American who cares about this nation, how do you resonate that message back to it, to families? 
Well, first, thanks for the question. Thanks again for including me. Uh, Angela, I would say you have to contextualize. Um, there's the, we don't have to take the 1619 project as the only way to bring about a, a different viewpoint of what transpired in American history. It was a very complex history, as human interaction always is. There's an opportunity to contextualize. I think a lot of times what we're seeing, not just in the 1619 project, but in cancel culture throughout America right now, is the, is the desire to see oneself versus seeing another anymore. But you can't eliminate one for the sake of another because we're all here together. We're a nation of over 320 million. So what you have to do as, as an African-American or as an American what you have to do as a parent or just as a concerned citizen is contextualize what's being taught in the school. See if it can be augmented with factual information. Show how these things ran alongside each other. One of the things that I like to talk about is when I, I was an, an adjunct professor at LaRoche College, I made my students be senators in the U.S. Senate in 1859. But not only did I have them debate the issue of slavery, I gave them a bio to contextualize what each one of them might be feeling based on what state they came from, how much they were worth, what their interests were, what their career interests were, because all of this is American history and it had an impact moving forward. Why did we have the Civil War? It wasn't just because of slavery. It was also because the couple of presidents prior to 1860 were not as strong as keeping the country together as they could have been. That's something that contextualizes how we got through the 1850s to the Civil War. It's extremely important to make sure that everybody can see themselves in American history, contextualize where that was in accordance to where it fits in with national history and world history so that you can see how we got here and what we may need to do to take the best steps forward to have a better America moving forward. Thank you. Um, you know, we were talking about parents and, and what happens in a household. But Jonathan, I want to come back to you and talk about, you know, the, the, the role of the federal government here. We know that things get done at the state level. We know that civil society plays a role. But many are wondering, is there a role for the federal government on this issue? Well, we have to be very careful. I, I think that um, when those that remember when the Common Core uh, came out several years ago, uh, the once families realized what was being done in schools and saw uh, how the standardization was actually taking higher academic standards from places like Massachusetts and uh, watering them down, uh, they immediately looked to how Washington had advocated in many places for that approach. Uh, I think the way that um, those standards were implemented in the states was through school boards. And so it, it was very much uh, something that had to be dealt with at state departments of education uh, by governors and by state and local school boards. And so I, I think the same thing here now, and I think the survey uh, and the results that Lindsay was talking about, that's why these are so important. It will be interesting to see how these numbers change, especially in the very near future over the next six to 12 months. Uh, it'll be important to know uh, where else uh, this uh, material is being taught in school and what parents think about that. I struggle to see a way that Washington can intervene on something that has to do with a very local, very personal issue. I mean, I think this is, um, you know, the bully pulpit is uh, something that can be used, I think, to uh, set uh, awareness and uh, but the the appropriate way I think that our uh, our federalist system was designed to 
um, to make change and to create a civil platform for change was through our states, was through our local communities. And so that's where it will have to be. And that's why, as Lenny said uh, so well, as Mike said so well, um, uh, having parents understand what is being done and being ready to talk to your child's teacher, uh, take advantage of this opportunity now when you're home with your student to know what's going on. Angela, if I may, just to leverage as well what Jonathan said, it's very important for people to understand that from a federal standpoint, we might not be able to put a whole bunch of federal policies into place, but we can put a federal tone into place. As we have seen with the domestic unrest over the last several months, you know, how we view America is a national security issue. And we cannot have a divided country as we're still dealing with the war on terror as we're still dealing with rogue nations around the world, and we're dealing with warfare even in a way that is now more economic and technological than it is militaristic. So if we don't have a common view of what makes America great, even if we disagree amongst the different flaws that we have and how we get through them, we remain vulnerable. That's where the federal government, that's where federal leaders can come into place, help set that tone so that as it trickles down to the local communities and the states, we understand there's still a, a level of being proud to be American. That's gonna be our foundation as we move forward with what the curricula is gonna look like moving forward. Okay, so, so Lindsay, I wanna come over to you and I'm gonna do a little bit of intertwining some of the questions that are coming in. But as we are saying, you know, there's the separation of power in terms of the actual role of government, federal government versus the state and, and, and parents. Um, people are wanting to know, you know, what are the alternatives for curriculum and, and where do they go for that? And as you answer that, a couple of questions have come in on the survey asking if you were surprised at the propensity of the school board members um, to, to have, um, to be opposed to 1619 and, and the fact that they have graduate degrees to the parents. Um, so if you can kind of blend those together, that, that yeah. would be that, that's a great question and a very good insight on the school board members. I was actually quite surprised to see how it all broke out. Uh, but having put a little thought into it after the fact, I think a couple of things explain it in particular. Um, the school board members in our survey did tend to be older than the parent respondents on average. Uh, they tended to be higher income earners than the parent respondents were on average. Um, and yes, they had significantly higher levels of graduate degree attainment. But I'm thinking that, and this is just inference from what the data suggests, is that they probably attended graduate school well before a lot of the parents, if they did attend graduate school in our survey did. Um, the other thing was that caveat that I pointed out at the top, which is a lot of our school board members were concentrated in the southeast, which could explain a little bit as well. But nonetheless, still uh, quite surprised at what we found there. On the curriculum piece, there are a lot of alternatives, and this is the beauty of a market, is that we're seeing that market produce all kinds of excellent, rigorous, um, America-centered curricula that families can access and should demand that they have access to. You can look at organizations like the James Madison Institute, the Bill of Rights Institute, the Ashbrook Center, the Jack Miller Center. There are great organizations now that are providing curriculum resources, textbooks for both students and providing uh, corollary teacher education as well at the same time. So definitely check that out. We have a list of all of those resources uh, on heritage.org. If you Google Curriculum Resource Initiative and Heritage Foundation, you'll see a list there as well. 
Wonderful. Well, our, our time is winding down. Mike, I want to get you back in here before we have to wrap up. Um, so so you, you laid out for us the historical um, landscape of, of how we got here, but want to get your insight on what else should parents be looking out for in terms of of, of, of those, um, the rumblings out there. For example, Black Lives Matter said that they're coming out with a curriculum. Uh, we've got Oprah Winfrey putting her voice into the conversation. So what, what are some of the caution um, uh, messages for parents who are listening at this moment uh, towards what's coming next and why we need them to, to keep pushing and keep moving? You know, what, uh, what teachers fear most is what Jonathan mentioned, is the parents coming in and asking questions and saying, why are you teaching these things in the curriculum? I know when, then I, when I have raised Howard Zinn, uh, for example, in the context of uh, AP US history for my children, the, the, the teachers are actually very apologetic and they say, look, it's what they've, that we've been asked to teach. We know that it's a pack of lies and we actually challenge the students. So, so you know, pushing back constantly on the teachers, as Jonathan said, it's it's a, uh, a, a but you know to go back to to what Lenny said as well. You also have to we have to grope for a better understanding of us as an American family. All of us do strive to be colorblind and see, you know, not not only what we have in common because we're human as as humans, but what we have in common as Americans. America is a country that has. Uh, purposes, that it has joint purposes. We have to go back to that. We cannot abandon that. We cannot abandon the field to the other side and let them explain this country as warped and bad from the beginning and everything has to be thrown out. We have to speak out, you know, agreeably, not disagree, disagreeably, but agree. But, but we have to push back constantly, I think. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Well, I've got to keep us on time. Um, to you, Lindsay Berg and Jonathan, and 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 to Mike and and Lenny, we thank you so much, Lindsay. The data, the research, and the analysis—I mean, it gets us to the facts. It helps us to part the waters on some of the emotion that's charged in the conversation, so that we can really drive towards solutions. To all of you who are participating and, and for those of you who ask questions, we thank you so much um, for participating in this webinar. All of the experts here uh, can be found on our website uh, and there will be a survey that follows this webinar. We encourage you to please fill it out uh, to help us have additional insight. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, there will be a recording. And we thank you so much again on behalf of the Heritage Foundation and our President Kay Coles James for joining this very critical conversation. And remember, this is only the first in a series of three. So again, Lindsay Burke, thank you so much for your leadership and we hope you will all join us again.